All right, guys, what's going on? So we're excited to join you today with uh, today's edition of the Roundtable. I'm joined here by a couple dear brothers, and uh, you guys see Jeff every week. But our guest this week is Alex Tuckness. And Alex, can't wait to hang out with you here over the lunch hour. Um, what we're doing is on the Roundtable, we are fighting isolation by... Uh, just sharing our conversations and, and Jeff and I are just catching up with using this as an excuse to reconnect with friends and have conversations and let other people in on it. So our goal is to just enjoy this time together and hope, hope we walk away encouraged. And if you're listening, we hope you can get some encouragement along the way as well. So I want to start with uh, Alex, just letting you share a little bit about your backstory um, who you are, uh, your, your family, uh, your God story, education. I don't know how you can, how you want to do that, but just sure. tell us about who you are. Yeah. So, uh, I, uh, I grew up in Springfield, Missouri, one of, uh, several places that claims to be the buckle of the Bible belt. So, I mean, it's, it's, you know, strong conservative Christian subculture, right? It's kind of the dominant, uh, kind of community where I grew up. I grew up in a really great Christian home. Um, uh, you know, my dad was a high school, uh, still is actually, a uh, high school speech and debate teacher. And for a lot of the time I was growing up, uh, he was also the part-time youth pastor uh, at our church. And then around the time I was, you know, getting to be a uh, youth age, he decided uh, one role was enough there. And uh, he went off staff and uh, my mom ended up a few years later going on staff and was the children's ministry director there for uh, 25 years, I think. So, um, yeah, and they, they just created a, a really um, grace-filled, loving family where I was taught about Jesus, you know, from, from when I was a kid. I committed my life to Christ when I was pretty young. And so the typical thing that goes along with that uh, is as you get older, then you start having to think through, like, why do I believe all this stuff? Do I just believe it because I was, you know, taught this from literally birth? Or, you know, do I really believe this because I think it's true? And so, uh, yeah, so there was, a, there was just a, a kind of a process I went through uh, faith-wise, um, particularly in college, of, like, having to just wrestle through, like, doubt and things like that. And um, yeah, and I would say, you know, you guys have heard me talk about this before. Um, I prefer to talk about doubt as more like an ongoing condition as opposed to, well, there's this one phase I went through uh, where I doubted and then I victoriously overcame it and haven't looked back since. Um, but, uh, uh, you know, in college and, and going forward, I feel like God has met me in ways where I've been able to say, you know what? Um, God is my father and, uh, you know, who I am is who I am in him and, uh, to kind of work through my questions in the relationship rather than using unanswered questions as a reason to step out of the relationship. Um, so, um, I graduated from high school, um, and then, I went off to, uh, the University of Chicago for undergrad. So uh, both my parents and both my sisters 
uh, all went to Southern Baptist colleges. So I'm kind of like the you know black sheep renegade going to a very secular school. Um, but it was actually ended up being really good for me. And I think um, uh, I both learned a lot and kind of got the culture shock experience of what it goes like from being in the Bible Belt to suddenly being in a situation where you kind of look around campus and it seems like Christians are I don't know, maybe five, 10% of the population. I mean, like that's how, that's what it felt like um, when I was, uh, when I was there. Um, Can I just say, uh, Alex, that it's, yeah. it's funny to me that going to the University of Chicago makes you a renegade. <laughs> like, right. My renegade moments should have been <laughs> such <laughs> like going to the University of Chicago. <laughs> anyway, sorry to interrupt. That's I just found no, that great. beautiful moment. <laughs> hey, Alex, you got a, there was a moment you shared before in one of your classes at the University of Chicago where you guys were studying Genesis. Oh, one, yeah. You got, you got to tell that story. Yeah. So this, <laughs> yeah, this is actually freshman year. This is one of those you know, moments that just sticks with you. So uh, I was taking this year-long humanities class um, called Human Being and Citizen. And the idea was like we would read all these like classic texts about what it means to be an excellent human being and citizen. And so like, uh, you know, we start off and we like read the Iliad, you know, and the kind of ancient Greek idea of heroism and things like that. And then I think maybe the second thing we read um, was the book of Genesis. And I have never, I mean, I've read Genesis before, right? Obviously I've heard the stories from Genesis a lot growing up, um, but this is the first time to ever like study the Bible in a secular setting. So, uh, we're, we're kind of going along. We're not very far in, like we're in Genesis three. And, uh, you know, the instructor is talking to people and saying, okay, so what would you do if you were in Adam and Eve situation, right? Would you eat from the tree of knowledge of good, good and evil and like no good and evil for yourself, knowing, you know, all of that kind of brings with it, or would you, um, you know, refrain and, and not eat the fruit? And we're kind of going around and people are talking and like everybody, like all these people are saying, oh yeah, I'd eat the fruit. And she's like, oh, I'm sure. Uh, if you would eat the fruit, raise your hand. And I look around, there's like 20 of us in this classroom, 18 hands go up. No, no, it's not true. It was 17. It was, there's, there was, cause there was three of us. There was me, um, uh, I think another Christian and a Jewish guy. Um, and so like, Three of us like have been taught from birth that this is the single worst decision in the history of humanity. Yeah. Right. So like we've been, we've been kind of prepped. Like if there's one question I know, what should you do or not do? Right. <laughs> right? But 85% of my classmates were like, I don't want to be a robot. I, you know, I want to be able to decide these things for myself. <laughs> and my, my little 18 year old brain was just like, what on earth do I even say? You know, it's like, so at the time, the best I could come up with is, you know, it's really for, easy for us to, in a very privileged environment here to say, ah, you know, death, suffering, you know, all the rest of it. I guess we'll live with all that. Um, you know, a lot of other people are suffering a lot more for their choice than we are. Um, but uh, my, my main takeaway from that was just, you know, any sense that it was somehow unfair for Adam and Eve's sin to be attributed to me just vanished. 
Um, mm. Because wow. I just felt like it is obvious to me that had I not been coached from birth, I would have had exactly the same answer. Wow. Right. I, I, wow. I don't think for a second I would have done anything different than what Adam and Eve had done if I'd been the one there um, instead of them. Wow. Um, no. How, how was your time at, at Chicago? I mean, did you feel it was a intellectually hostile environment to you as a Christian? Did you feel, did you have any kind of crisis of faith where it's like going from Missouri, not right. just Southern Baptist, but Missouri Christian, you know, right, uh, right. and to, into that environment, did you have any intellectual crises? Yeah, I mean, I, I think, you know, one of the things that was hard is I think just the way we're wired, what seems plausible to us is partly a function of what seems plausible to the people who are around all the time, you know? And so growing up in the Bible Belt, I mean, the, the reality is, I mean, I was a public school kid all the way through, and I'm confident at least 80% of my teachers were Christian, right? Uh, you know, all the way through. I mean, so teachers who were Christians, administrators who were Christians, I mean, the same Southern Baptist Church, you know, for my entire life with the same pastor and the same music. I mean, I'm a very, very, I mean, actually freakishly stable, um, you know, environment that I'm, I'm growing up in. And so when everybody around you regards, you know, the truth of the gospel is um, either obvious or at least plausible, right, that kind of shapes things. Right. And so, yeah, there was this kind of sense when I moved here that all of a sudden um, it seemed like very few of, if any of my professors um, believed in Jesus. It seemed like, you know, very few of my classmates did. And these were people I could tell were smart. I mean, these were very intelligent people. Right. Uh, you know, a lot of people who had studied more than I had and all that. And so, uh, yeah, I think there was sometimes this kind of sense that to be to be intellectually serious and to be taken seriously intellectually, you kind of need to be skeptical. Um, you know, that I've since then read people, I think, I think, uh, um, I think Dallas Willard has some line where he says, you know, in, in modernity, you can be as dumb as a cabbage, but if you are skeptical, people will credit you with being fairly smart. You know? <laughs> you know, we, we just kind of like, as long as, as long as you don't commit to anything and are skeptical of everything that kind of comes across as wise. And, um, mm. wow. you know, so, yeah. So I think that did create, you know, some of this conflict when I was in college about, yeah, what is it, you know, for me, the biggest question was, do I only believe this because of the particular family I happen to be born into, right? If I'd been born into some family in Pakistan, right? I'd, I'd be, uh, you know, uh, so, a Muslim kind of equally convinced that Islam was true. And then how do, you know, how do I? Alex, that's an important, uh, you know, at, in uh, Dr. Avalos's class, I studied under him at, at Iowa State. Um, mm -hmm. Brilliant man, really. I enjoy my relationship with him. I have a lot of respect for him. And, but that was one of his uh, objections to Christianity was, it seems like whatever you're raised, that's what you'll be. Uh, if you're raised, you know, in Pakistan, like you said, you'll be Muslim if you're raised right. in this. And what's, what's a response that you would have to that? Well, you know, when, when I was in college, I remember, you know, really been wrestling with this kind of stuff. And I think it's like sophomore year, 
I was on this long road trip. Um, uh, I mean, this is some of the, my, my nerdiness. I was, it was a long road trip uh, because I was doing uh, the college debate team, you know, so and we're like, I can't remember going to or from a tournament on the East Coast from Chicago. That's like, that takes nerd to the next level. Oh, I know. <laughs> you're, already at the, you're already at the University of Chicago, which, which enters you into that category. And then you're on the debate team. Oh, yeah, that's right. I mean, I mean, there's a little parentheses here, and then we'll come back to a more serious point. Like, one of my things is, is I realized, you know, relativity isn't true about everything, but I think it is true about nerdiness. You know, like, it's, it's all relative. Um, you know, so, like, uh, it, takes, it takes something to be a nerd among nerds, right? <laughs> but if you keep just working up the nerd ladder, eventually you can reach a point where you're not a nerd anymore. Like one of my, you know, <laughs> Jeff's heard this story. Like one of my, my favorite stories is skip ahead to when I'm in grad school. Um, uh, this is at Princeton. Uh, so they had a dorm that's just all graduate students, right? So like the ecosystem here is all like basically like PhD students at Princeton, right? That's, that's kind of everybody. So like, what does it take to be a nerd there? Right? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and like, I have this distinctive moment where I, you know, I, I watched a lot of football back then and uh, like it was Monday night. So I went down to watch Monday night football and in the dorm, there were like two TV rooms. And uh, I went into the first TV room and there was a bunch of guys watching this sci-fi show called Babylon 5. Like, oh, okay. So then I went to the other TV room and there's a different group of guys all watching Babylon 5, right? <laughs> I said, hey, could you guys go and join the other guys in the other room? Because they're watching the same show so I can watch Monday Night Football. And they're like, oh yeah, sure. Oh, okay. And they all like scurried out. And then all of a sudden I'm like, I think I'm the bully, right? I'm like... <laughs> And, and it, it felt good. Like I, felt somehow I've become like the outgoing cool kid, right? And, and <laughs> that, was, that was a brief window in time. Most of my life I've been very solidly in the, in the nerd camp. Oh, Alex, that is one of my favorite things about you is your self-reflections <laughs> on nerdiness. <laughs> okay. That was, okay. Y you also told a story about celebrating a 4th of July party at, now Canadian. was that Cambridge? Yeah. I, what's, what's your past? It was University yeah. of Chicago. Where'd you so, go? Yeah, so the, 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 the chronology is, so I'm at the University of Chicago. Um, I finished up a little early and did an internship out in Washington, D.C. Um, with the U.S. Senate that helped me decide I didn't want to be a politician. Um, and then I got this uh, scholarship to go study at Cambridge for a year. Uh, and and get my master's degree, um, and then after that I went to Princeton uh, and was there for four years getting my PhD. So the year I was at Cambridge, um, uh, the guy who ended up becoming my best friend and who I've actually stayed in contact with and even co-authored a book with. Um, he was in the same program as I was. Uh, he was a fellow American, um, and he decided that. Uh, he wanted to have uh, a 4th of July party in England, which, you know, if you think about that, right, <laughs> you know, it's us, you know, like celebrate our war where, you know, we rebelled against you guys. Uh, so like, there is no 4th of July in England. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> it's, a holiday. it's on the, it's on the calendar. I mean, you know, just skip it, but you know, um, 
So the question is like, how do you get people to, to come? So my, his name is John. John's brainstorm was, uh, he sent out invitations to everybody in his, all the grad students in his dorm and said, um, if your country has ever fought a war against England, come <laughs> and join us as we remember our war against England on the 4th of July. <laughs> you know, Cambridge, when I was there, and his college even more, it was like, I bet 70% international students. Mm -hmm. So among grad students, most of them are not English. And most countries have fought a war against England. <laughs> I was just thinking the same thing. I was like, wow, you must have been inundated by the most. Yeah, like basically everybody could come but the Canadians, you know? <laughs> um, yeah, so, you know, he, uh, you know, he like, you know, read a, uh, you know, he actually had a reading of the Declaration of Independence and you know, <laughs> the whole kind of thing. And Alex, you were, you were solidly in the nerd camp <laughs> in oh, that I party. I know. I love oh, it. Oh, that is so good. <laughs> what, what was Cambridge like? What was Cambridge like? Um, you know, it was good. I mean, it's, it's in some ways, you know, England and America are very different academically in terms of just the, the style of it, you know? So like in, you know, in American classes, they, they give you super detailed instructions about what you're supposed to do, right? You read exactly these pages, you do exactly these things, here's what's gonna be on the exam, right? You know, it's, it's extremely structured. You got, you know, quizzes and exams and homeworks for every single class. And, uh, you know, in, in the, the Cambridge system, especially for the undergrads, it's mostly like, here's some lectures, go to the ones you think will be helpful. Here's some stuff you should read in this long reading list. Check back in in three years and you're gonna have this really important exam and we'll figure out how much you learned. I mean, it's, it's just this wow. completely, you know, so they, I think they take like one exam at the end of the first year and then a bigger exam at the end of the third year when they graduate and that's it. Like, most classes don't have like a final, right? I mean, the classes is just to help you learn stuff so that someday when you take the final exam, you'll do better on it. Wow. But by contrast, you know, Cambridge is divided up into all these different colleges and uh, they structure your social life a lot, right? There's like always like events and different kinds of things to go to. Like there's even like, you know, formal dinners where, you know, in Harry Potter-like fashion, you know, you wear robes and the whole thing to, you know, uh, go eat your dinner. Um, and so, uh, whereas in an American university, your social life, you're mostly on your own, right? You gotta go figure out your friends, figure out what you're gonna do with your life. Um, you know, in my case, I was there as a, as a graduate student and it was, you know, intellectually, it was really good because it was a great trial run for figuring out what getting a PhD was going to be like, uh, because the way their graduate program and there was a few there's a few lectures to go to, a seminar to go to, but mainly it was you come up with questions, you do research, you write papers on those questions, working with a faculty member, which is basically what writing a dissertation is, um, and so it ended up being like kind of great practice to figure out. Oh, actually, I kind of like doing that sort of uh, thing. Um, you know, it was socially, it was interesting. Like I realized how American I was, um, you know, I realized, you know, my sense of humor is very American. 
uh, you know, the, and the, at Cambridge, it was just very common because there were so many international students in my, as, as graduate students, like I sit down to dinner and, uh, well, one, I'll tell you another story. So like some of the differences, right? At Cambridge, uh, I could eat meals out at the kind of graduate college area for my college, Corpus Christi. And, uh, but in order to have dinner there, you had to make reservations. So like you had to let them know by like two o'clock you were coming, so you had to make reservations. Uh, and then there'd be like a little cocktail hour before, and then a waitress would come out wearing uh, a white blouse and a black skirt. She would ring a gong, right? And that would be then the signal uh, that you're supposed to like file in for dinner. Like everybody stands behind, you know, you find an empty place, stand until everybody is ready, then everybody like sits down at the same time. A waitress comes then and serves everybody your main course, and then she brings everybody dinner, and there's like coffee and tea. And like, this is just normal life uh, at Cambridge. I even, they, they even had maids uh, who would come in and like make the bed and, uh, you know, uh, take out my trash and everything five days a week, you know? So like to go from the Ozarks to, uh, <laughs> um, it was, it was something like, I, I was talking to our friends, like, I feel really weird about having somebody make my bed. I, I, I don't make my bed. Like, I don't think I ever made my bed through college. <laughs> and uh, um, uh, she's like, oh, don't do that. I made my own bed. And she got really angry and offended. She thought I didn't appreciate her work or something. So don't do that. So, um, <laughs> Oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. You're going but, from. Uh, I'd sit down to one of these meals. It'd be like six people at a table. And it was common to have five countries represented among the six people. So it was just interesting getting to like, be meeting people from literally all over the uh, the world. Mm. Uh, I actually found a good Bible preaching church uh, when I was over there. So I actually had, uh, you know, good Christian fellowship. I mean, that's one of the things. See, I've moved around to a lot of different places, uh, but there's there's always been a faithful remnant of God's people that I've been able to connect with at each of those different, uh, you know, spots along the way, which. Yeah, which has been great. What, what did you What did you study there? Uh, at Cambridge, it was it's a long title. It was um, the history of political uh, thought, uh, master's degree in political thought and intellectual history. So it's basically the history of thinking about political ideas. So, like, what did Plato think about justice? You know, what did Aristotle think about equality? Uh, and, you know, how do those ideas about you know, politics change over time. So, so are you, so you're, basically your field is you're a political philosopher? Yeah. Essentially, is yeah. in the political science department there at Iowa State. What's your, I guess, official title or? Yeah, so, you know, when I was at Cambridge, uh, I was technically there, just, it's the same thing, but you can kind of classify it in three different spots at least, you know, so I was technically in the history department uh, at Cambridge, because it's the history of ideas. Um, in the US, you could either do it in the philosophy department or in a political science department. Um, so my primary appointment at Iowa State is in political science, uh, but I have like a courtesy appointment title uh, with the Department of Philosophy and Religious Studies as well. So okay. in, in terms of what I actually do, it's more like what people in the philosophy department at Iowa State do. Um, uh, but in terms of like where my office is located and who pays my salary, 
uh, that's coming out of political science. So I'm going to get to some, I mean, maybe we can get to some political conversations that might interest people. But before we do that, I uh, minored in philosophy at Iowa State. And so I know just enough to be dangerous. And uh, mm -hmm. so I want to ask some questions about that because I'm curious about it first. Uh, okay. Before we respond to the news cycle, we'll respond to the the ancient news cycle um, of asking you. So recently I've been reading just some biographies of some of the founders, you know, John Adams uh, right now. I'm, I'm um, almost done with Hamilton's biography and just, it's, it's a fascinating time. And um, in one of my favorite philosophy classes at Iowa state was 18th century philosophy. So we studied John Locke, Hume, um, Bishop Barclay, Descartes a little bit. Um, trying to remember who else is in there um and Immanuel Kant uh but John Locke you you mm -hmm. studied his ideas and he was influential and and he's referenced a lot in these biographies what is what is kind of the impact of of those philosophers and the, and and their thoughts on our current government and how it's structured yeah, Man, so this I, is like a softball. This is like a softball for Alex right now. <laughs> Although maybe maybe it's like asking to steer the Titanic at this point. You got a lot to answer this one with. Well, yeah. So so I think you know if you go back and you read Locke, you see a lot of things that for Americans just seem like common sense um, because it's there's a lot like in the Declaration of Independence and even in some of our founding documents like the constitution that kind of embody those principles. In fact, like uh, sometimes with my students, I do this exercise where I, I give them a handout, you know, and in one column they have, uh, you know, quotations from the Declaration of Independence. And then in the other column, they have corresponding quotations from John Locke's uh, second treatise of government. And then I asked them whether or not uh, we should prosecute uh, Thomas Jefferson for plagiarism or not. Um, <laughs> you know, explaining that like, you know, just because you change the wording a little bit from what you got on Wikipedia doesn't mean it's suddenly your ideas, right? So just because you change the wording around, right? Um, and I mean, it's, it's pretty striking, you know? So the idea that human beings are by nature equal, that's in John Locke, that they are endowed by certain rights by their creator, as in John Locke, you know, that governments, uh, you know, are, you know, derive their legitimacy from the consent of the governed, that's in John Locke, that, um, you know, we have certain inalienable rights, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Locke has the same thing, only it's life, liberty, and property in his version. So he, uh, Jefferson changed property to pursuit of happiness, but it's very similar. Uh, and, you know, crucially for Jefferson, this is why I think he was using Locke um, and other people who thought like Locke, uh, he's trying to justify a revolution, right? And so Locke includes this defense of the, you know, right of the people to replace a government that fails to promote the public good and respect uh, the rights of its citizens. And so because the Declaration of Independence has you know, such a kind of iconic place in American history that's created a lot of the political categories that we still tend to think in. Uh, you know, Locke also uh, talked about the idea of like separation of powers. Um, his version was a little different, uh, but the, the you know, basic idea of 
thinking about uh, you know, the function of making rules is different than the function of enforcing rules, right? Um, and, you know, that, and conceptually, you need to kind of think about those as separate things, right? So that ends up being, uh, being influential. Um, and then, you know, as the, as the, he's writing that at the end of the 17th century, as the 18th century goes along, you know, you have other people making uh, important contributions, like, you know, with, with David Hume, I think he's one of the people who kind of helps you know, kind of get the idea going that uh, you can just sort of like try to balance different interests against each other, right, as, as a way of trying to achieve stability. I mean, Kant has some similar ideas uh, like that too, although he's, he's later. Um, so, um, yeah, so some of the ideas about like, you know, balance of powers and, you know, how you would try to make a republic work if it's you know extended over a really large geographical area, like most republics prior to the United States had been like little city states, right? So the idea that you could have a republic, you know, on a on a big scale and have it hold up, uh, you know, was was controversial. One so. of, one of my questions were dealing with, uh, even with the coronavirus. To what extent is this a federal question mm -hmm. and versus more of a local state question? Um, it's really interesting because. When I hear people talk, sometimes they, they kind of idealize the founding of like there was this time where everything was perfect. Right. <laughs> and the more I'm reading these biographies, I mean, these guys hated each other. <laughs> Hamilton and Jefferson and Adam. I mean, they all they all fought against each other. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, the hostility. I mean, well, Hamilton's life ended in a duel, you know. Right. Uh, what's kind of your assessment of our current political divide and how do you because when I hear you talk about politics it's almost like you're observing it from an outsider I don't want to say right. transcendent but but just kind of looking at it outside and yeah. yeah no I mean I think it's fair I mean like because of what I do I, I I'm more likely to kind of think in centuries instead of thinking in the like 24-hour news cycles you know so <laughs> that's healthy one of my one of my favorite quotes is uh, I can't remember who it was, but there was somebody I think he was maybe from India, um, and he was asked, you know, uh, so what do you think about this great American experiment with democracy? Uh, and his answer was, oh, too early to say. <laughs> 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 what you've had a couple hundred years? I mean, you think you could pass judgment that quickly? You know? <laughs> uh, yeah. the, so I think that. Um, it is helpful to realize that as polarized as things are, it's not like things have not been this polarized or more in the past, mm. right? I mean, uh, like, from what I understand, it's before my era, but the level of social tension that existed uh, in the 1960s in the United States is really high. You know, you, you've got, you know, race riots, you know, you know, all the civil rights protests, you've got the Vietnam War and all the, the anti-war protests. There's like, you know, we sometimes talk about kind of the generational stuff that's going on now where uh, older voters are more likely to lean uh, Republican and, and younger voters are more likely to lean Democrat. But I think the generational gap was much worse, you know, in a lot of ways, you know, during the Vietnam War, just because, you know, it's, it's the, 
college age people who are getting drafted and sent over. So like it's a, it's a mobilizing issue in a very, you know, personal way for them. And so, um, yeah, I just try to like remind myself, like there's a little bit of an ebb and flow to these kinds of things, which by the way, doesn't mean there's any guarantee that things will get better. <laughs> you know, I mean, history is also full of things going like this and then finally like, you know, uh, collapsing. That can, I mean, that can happen too. Um, but if you go even further back, like um, the level of animosity that existed in the United States during the Civil War, right, is just off the charts, right? I mean, so like, however, however much ill will we think there is now, right, we haven't actually had like, um, you know, members of Congress bludgeoning other members of Congress with canes, you know, like on in the Capitol building, right? Um, you know, like as polarized as we are, I really can't imagine like Republicans and Democrats taking up arms against each other, right, to fight a civil war, right? So, yeah, so I, I mean, I do think the, the level of polarization we have right now is real. It is, I mean, I do think it's, it's measurably worse than it was uh, for most of my lifetime. But, you know, if you can go back further, it's, it's not unprecedented. So what's your encouragement to Christians in this moment? Well, I mean, I think part of it is uh, just to remember um, God never promised us, uh, you know, either tranquil or favorable political circumstances, right? You know, so, you know, when, when, when Christianity first comes onto the scene, it's under the dictatorship of a Roman emperor, right? And so uh, however much you think the government is trampling our rights now, I guarantee you we've got a whole lot more than uh, any of our Christian brothers and sisters did for centuries. Um, you know, but, but Christians have been able to figure out what it looked like to be faithful in a variety of different circumstances. And so I think it's an encouragement to know um, both political parties can want to make it seem like um, it's this like existential threat if the other side wins. Um, and, you know, as Christians, there is no existential threat, right? I mean, like, are, are, we, get to, we get to live for eternity with Jesus Christ in the new heavens, the new earth, right? However things go now, um, it it shouldn't cause us to be passive in the sense of like, it doesn't matter what happens now. Um, but I think it actually allows us to constructively engage without, without the same level of fear or anxiety that drives a lot of, of and hatred. I mean, I, those are the, maybe the big three of um, a lot of American politics right now. So I think that's really good, Alex. I, um, you know, sometimes, large either national or international crises kind of draw the best out of people. You know, like I think after 9-11, for instance, how this whole nation just kind of pulled together and said, man, we're, we're one nation and one people kind of thing, at least for a little season there, you know, there was a, a moment of pulling together because of the crisis. And I feel like um, as Christians, we were kind of hoping maybe for that to be true in, during this coronavirus and it, it seems maybe the opposite. It has, it has actually fostered more of a polemic, more of a polarizing, I guess. But 
as Christians, I mean, what, what you were just saying, we should have an eternal perspective and that shouldn't make its way into the community of God's people. Like we, we should be a unified people. We should be a listening people. We should be accommodating to our brothers and sisters and even to our neighbors kind of people, you know, or whatever. And so it's, it's one thing to evaluate like culture right now, or even America right now, but yeah. Do you have a word specifically to the church? Like how, I don't want to jump ahead, Mark. To Let me add some more context to that, Jeff. Yeah, yeah. Because just this morning, I was kind of refereeing an argument between a family. There's a situation, I'll say, uh, that involves the use of our facility. And, you know, one of the family members comes up and handshake and full-on hug and, you know, kind of grieving through this situation and and the other part of the family masks, they don't want to touch and, and kind of a, a little, it was, it was sad, but you know, an argument breaks out on, I, and it's, it was, it was hard and I'm in the middle of this and I, I just see this, uh, yeah, I'm trying to, yeah, I want to protect everyone's dignity here. And, but, um, it's, it was a very tough situation because now it's entered the church and, you know, family members and, people angry that this this we shouldn't meet and this other group is we have to meet i need to you know i need church yeah the that's that was fresh from this morning uh right. two hours ago for me and so yeah please help <laughs> <laughs> well so i think i think the first thing to say is um you know pride tends to make conflict worse and humility tends to make it better. And the, like, one of the things I've thought about is, is if, if like, if there are real decisions, like practical decisions people have to make, right? So institutions have to make decisions about at what speed they're gonna reopen, what way, what the rules are gonna be, right? Individuals and families are having to make decisions about how much social distancing they're gonna do, what, how much they're going to continue to restrict activity. And, you know, and then at the political level, you know, communities, cities, states, national government, like there's all these different layers of people who are all making decisions. And so if we could all just start by having the humility to say, none of us should be sure we're right. Like, you know, there, there, there's really difficult decisions to make. And, I need to be okay with realizing it is both possible that we are loosening things up too quickly, that we're going to see another uh, spike, uh, overloaded hospitals, you know, and unnecessary deaths as a result of loosening things up too quickly. Uh, and we may look back and say, ah, we blew it there, right? We, or it is also possible that the nature of this virus uh, is such uh, that we're pretty much all gonna get it at some point anyway. Like it's, 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 it's too far spread out there in the community. And uh, so we're just trying to like minimize the economic damage while trying to make sure we don't overload our hospitals, but we're actually, we've done enough now, right? To be able to loosen things up a little bit safely. Um, there's so much we don't know about like, how many people have been infected but didn't have symptoms? Like, what, what's what's the actual rate this thing has already spread through our community? There's just 
so much information we don't know that if people can start from the, the first principle, like reasonable people can disagree um, about the speed and rate at which we reopen. I think that's helpful. And then secondly, to realize we all have different spheres in which God has given us a responsibility to make decisions because that's the stewardship that's been entrusted to us. And so we have to try to make the decisions within our sphere of responsibility as faithfully as we can while recognizing that other people are going to make different decisions. So that means like if you're a governor, you're, if you're the governor of Iowa, you have to be okay with the fact that the governor of like Minnesota or Wisconsin may be doing things very differently than you are, right? And vice versa, right? And so you've got, um, not all churches are gonna uh, move at the same speed. Not all families are gonna move at the same speed. And sometimes just the individual circumstances in the particular family are different and that's part of what warrants different decisions. Sometimes it's just different you know, assumptions of risk and what risks people think are, are reasonable to take. Um, but if, if, in other words, if, if, if I can be okay with saying, hey, you know, I think you're being too, if I, if I think somebody's being too conservative, right, and, and too risk averse uh, with the decisions they're making for their family, it's, it's their family, right? I mean, that, that's, that's their you know, that's their decision to be able to, uh, to make. And it's, um, and so that'd be my second principle. And I'll just say the third one is, I think this is an important time to remember kind of the value of just respect for authority, right? That um, we may have differences of opinions about which governors are doing a better and worse job. Um, we may have difference of opinion about whether which countries are doing better and worse jobs at managing this. Um, but at a certain level, like authority is created by God for our good. And so, you know, in, in general, like if, if, if the governor of Iowa says, don't meet in groups of more than 10 people, I want to try to honor that and not meet in groups of more than 10 people, even if I would have made a different rule. Um, you know, because those are kind of the authorities that have been put in place. And I also like, um, I've been trying not to think that I can suddenly become uh, an expert in epidemiology, right? <laughs> like, so often the people who are making these decisions have spent way more time, have access to much better information than I do. Um, you know, and so, so I would say like, whether it's, you know, respecting the authority of the elders at your church as each church is making decisions about how it's going to handle that or at the political level or just different families. You know, the more we can respect the authorities that are put over us and also just the, the right of different people to make different independent judgments about how to navigate this, um, I think the better off we'll be. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. Well, we hear a lot about coronavirus. And, uh, and so I'm going to move on to the next topic that I'm interested in talking about. Uh, I, so, so before we leave the kind of your political philosophy in your realm. Um, so I did one of the great courses, you know, you can get those on audible or, or you can find those. And, and I did one on Augustine's the city of God. 
Mm-hmm. And so I listened to this long lecture series by, by this guy. I don't know what, if he was from Cambridge or where he was from, but it was really fascinating. He did a great job. And I remember I called you and I was like, Alex, I'm, I'm going to read this book and I'm going to study this book because I really want to understand it. You're like, don't do it. <laughs> it's, gonna, <laughs> it's a waste of your time. Um, but I do want to ask you what, what from that book, why is that considered one of the great books? What can we learn from, maybe you can just set up the context and kind of what, yeah. give no, me I'm, the reader's I'm, digest. Yeah, it, it is a really important book, but it is so big and so long that uh, just the, it's very easy to start going and get bogged down and never finish it and not get to like some of the more interesting parts that are toward the end of the book. Um, so, there's several things I like about it. One is, you know, he's, he's, he's a, a very thoughtful Christian writing as the Roman Empire is falling apart, right? You know, so like, in some ways, he's, he's not a bad person. Like, if you have the sense, like, maybe America's falling apart, right? Or at least is in, in like, a period of decline, relatively speaking. Um, you know, he was able, like, one of the things... Augustine was able to do was to kind of disentangle theology from politics in the following way. I mean, he thought theology had things to say about politics, but there were people who had kind of read the Roman Empire into the Bible. You know, so like, you know, when, uh, you know, it says in Psalms, you know, he makes wars cease to the ends of the earth, right? Oh, yes, that's, that's talking about like, um, you know, the Roman emperor is, you know, bringing peace to the whole world, right? And so, uh, you know, there's this idea that the Roman empire is the vehicle God has chosen for bringing uh, the gospel to the ends of the earth, which if you think about what they lived through, right, you know, Constantine's conversion and suddenly through the Roman empire, like there is this massive increase, right, in the number of Christians. But what had happened, right, is people were now thinking, um, if Rome falls, it kind of like falsifies the Bible somehow, right? If, if, if the Bible predicted God was going to do all this stuff through Rome and then Rome falls apart, can we trust our Bibles anymore, right? And before Rome had fallen, you know, uh, completely, you know, Augustine is, is thinking all this stuff through and he's saying, wait, wait, wait a second. Just because the barbarians sacked Rome doesn't mean anything about whether God is faithful to his promises or not. You know, he kind of works back through and helps them to see, no, the Bible doesn't actually say that, you know, Rome is God's specially chosen instrument through which all these different prophecies are going to be fulfilled. Um, And so at a certain level as Christians, like Rome can fail and the kingdom of God stands firm, right? But when you're living through that, that can be hard to, hard to accept. Um, but I think, it's think yeah. I was just going to say, Alex, even early on, it even goes darker than that in the sense that Christians, he's trying to even defend Christianity against the attack that it's because right. of the Christian influence in the right. Roman empire that it's collapsing. So yeah. not just it's preserving power or whatever, or whatever, you know, but that it itself is culpable for, that's right. Anyway, but so he kind of tackles that as well. Keep, I'm yeah, sorry, keep going. Like, you know, the, the critique is something like, you know, uh, 
we Romans as pagans had a great thing going for like 800 years <laughs> and we convert to Christianity and in short order, the whole thing falls apart. Yep. Um, and so, yeah, people are, are wanting to blame uh, Christians for that. So like, so part of his, his defense is trying to show the ways Christianity helped protect people, you know, when Rome was getting sacked, like the, the, the positive influence Christianity has had. Um, but part of it too is also like this disentangling of what the actual promises were uh, that I found valuable because I kind of grew up, um, you know, with the kind of a version of Christianity uh, that almost seemed to like passively assume that America had some special biblical role to play in God's plan of redemption, you know, and, you know, open your concordance and look for the United States of America in your Bible and you get zero, right? I mean, we're, we didn't exist. <laughs> uh, nobody was talking about us. Like we don't have some like special privileged place. And so it allows you, whatever ends up happening with the United States as a political country, it, it like helps you to view it in a proper, proper context. Um, a second thing I really like about Augustine City of God is that um, for Augustine, the most important thing is what you love. Like, you know, you, you can ask of an individual, what is your greatest love? And I think for him, that is the most important question to ask about you. Um, you know, is, is it God? Is it money? Is it fame? Uh, is it glory? You know, what, what is it, right, that you love the most? And like, so that's kind of just built into his whole view of things, right? Is, is we're, we're in some sense governed by our, our strongest love. And that um, Christians are a community of people whose, whose greatest love is God himself and who, who are kind of on a pilgrimage uh, toward the day when they get to fully experience God's reign in his new kingdom. But in the meantime, this is you know why there's like these kind of two cities, the, the city of God, which is all the people who are faithful um, uh, followers of Jesus, live life mixed in with a lot of other people whose, whose love is different, right? That the earthly city is different than the heavenly city because the earthly city has as its highest love the things of man, you know, whether it's money or fame or pleasure, I mean, those sorts of things are what um, define people. And, and, and he thinks not only define individuals, but at some level can like define countries, like empires, regimes. So his analysis of the Roman Empire is that the whole Roman Empire is really founded on the love of glory, right? That if, if, you're, if you're a Roman citizen, um, you know, anything is better than dishonor, right? And, th and this, is, this is what will get a Roman soldier, you know, to fight to the death for the glory of Rome because there's honor and dying a noble death on the battlefield. There's shame, you know, if you're a coward who runs away, you kind of live with that shame for the rest of your life. Um, and their, their goal is not just individual glory, but the glory of Rome, right? For Rome to be great. And his analysis of God is, you know, God basically looks at the Romans and say, okay, what you want more than anything uh, is glory for Rome. Okay, fine, you can have that, right? So like, they, they get 
a greater kingdom than any other earthly kingdom you know, has had before them. Um, but it's not enough. Like one of his, his big themes in the city of God is all these other loves in the end are unsatisfying and insufficient. And any society that's built on the love of something other than God is built on a vice and it's eventually going to crumble under its own weight, right? So in other words, not only is it possible that Rome should fall, we should expect Rome to fall. It's really just a question of when, right? Because, because Rome is built on the, you know, its own glory. And so I've thought about that too, like with respect to the United States. And I'm not sure, is our greatest love money and material possessions? I think that sometimes, um, is it a kind of like freedom defined as I should be able to do whatever I want to do and nobody should be able to tell me what to do? Maybe that's it. Um, but so it, I think, I think Augustine's really helpful because it forces you to both look, look inside your own heart, but also kind of think about the society you live in and ask yourself, what do I love and what do we love the most? Um, Jeff, I, I wonder, you talked about that. Nobody can tell me what to do. This is my choice, my freedom, my, I have these rights. Uh, Jeff, one of your students or a student, uh, was talking about masks and just the pro-choice thing. I thought that was an interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. He's studying ethics right now, Alex. <laughs> and uh, um, Yeah. He was just talking about the ethical dilemma of Christians who rightly want to protect the pre-born, right? So we understand that um, our personal rights end when somebody else is in jeopardy. So, so we protect the vulnerable, even at the restriction of our own rights. But he was talking about how he was challenged when it came to wearing a mask because he doesn't want to wear a mask. But he realizes that by not wearing a mask, he endangers the life of somebody else. So he, he's, he's working through in his mind, what's a consistent ethic? If, I, if I'm saying I'm pro-life, therefore, these things, doesn't that also impact the way that I think about wearing a mask? And I, I just said, man, I'm so grateful that you're thinking along those lines because that's a real challenge to me. How, how do I not only believe in life so much that I'm out to protect the lives of the innocents and the others around me or whatever? So, And I think, it, Alex, it gets into your riff on freedom where... Freedom is not necessarily, I can do whatever I want and nobody can tell me what to do. <laughs> right. There's a, it, back to Augustine, on sometimes freedom is, is a freedom to love your neighbor. Right. And what does that look like? Uh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I think um, one way of putting it is the true freedom has to be oriented toward what's good, right? So in other words, if, if we think of freedom primarily as my ability to choose good or evil, um, and my right to choose evil, like needs to be, you know, protected. And like, that's, that's freedom at like its most fundamental level. Um, it creates, uh, it creates problems uh, because, you know, obviously many of the things we choose to do are harmful to other people, right? Uh, or, are actually harmful to ourselves, right? You know, we can, uh, you know, I can use my freedom to take heroin and I end up with heroin controlling me, 
right? Um, you know, like many of the desires we uh, can freely choose in the beginning, right, uh, end up taking a hold of us and actually controlling us. And so, um, yeah, I think a better Christian understanding of freedom is that freedom is rooted in identity, right? So in other words, we, we, we have an identity as God created us. And given the way God created us, there are certain things that tend toward our good as human beings. And so when we are seeking the goods that fit us as God created us, that's when we're most free. Um, you know, so like I, I, you know, I like to use the example, like a, a fish does not become more free, right, when it decides to jump out of the water. Right? It becomes less free because the, the water was actually the context which, given its identity, is for its good and flourishing. Right? And the, you know, the, the different kind of moral restraints that God puts on us, um, you can look at every, every moral rule as just one more restriction of my freedom because it's one more thing I'm not allowed to do. But those are actually channeling us in a path that's for our good, right? If, if, if the more you take like absolute freedom of choice to its logical conclusion, I get to where I can't make any meaningfully lasting commitments to another human being. And so like, I think I've become more free, but I've actually foreclosed a lot of the most valuable forms of human relationship that depend on people being able to make a long-term commitment to each other. So Alex, is this connected to, I think, Augustine's argument on just the freedom of your will in the sense of exploring like predestination? So I, this is where angels fear to uh, tread. So I don't, I don't want to go too far down here, but I'm just wondering about the argument about getting what you love. Like, right. like how you said the most important thing is what you love. And I, I don't know if this is similar to like Jonathan Edwards' argument from desire, like essentially... God is saying to us as humans, you are free. You can choose whatever you want. You are totally free. And like Augustine, you are free to love whatever you want. And people are like, yeah, I love heroin. And so they, they freely, that's like the problem of our sin nature is mm -hmm. that we always choose the sin. We, we love sin and, and that God, the bondage of, of our freedom is that we're always choosing what we love. That's the problem is we love, we don't love the glory of God. And so God changes our hearts. Is that a similar, like our Edward's thing on desire and Augustine's thing on love? Yeah, I mean, I, I, maybe the way I would put it is um, if, if I love what is truly good, then pursuit of what is good doesn't seem burdensome or restrictive, right? In other words, when I'm doing the thing that I love, I don't feel constrained, right? So like, you know, a, a good musician playing a Beethoven symphony doesn't feel like put upon and constrained by the notes that are saying exactly which notes and to play for how long, because the very thing this person loves to do is play in a symphony. Right? And, and with other people to make an amazing sound that couldn't be made if they weren't working together and, and coordinated. You know, when, uh, you know, back when I used to run, um, you know, I'd sometimes go to the Iowa State cross country track. You know, we got, there's a path. And if you're a runner, 
the path, it never occurs to you, why not just go run through the weeds, <laughs> right? Because the running is better on the path, right? And the, the, if your identity is, I am someone who loves to run, then the path to run in is a blessing, right? It increases my freedom. Because I, ha I have a context where I can do the very thing I most want to do. Um, but if we love what isn't good, you know, our love takes us into the weeds and now we start finding ourselves you know, constrained in all kinds of ways that, uh, you know, we didn't expect, right? So I, th I think, I think what, what both Augustine and Edwards would agree with is the, the kind of freedom we, we really want is that freedom of wholehearted love of God himself, because God, God is the ultimate source of all goodness, right? Mm -hmm. And so the more that's what we love, the more free we are. Whereas if we define our freedom primarily is like reserving the right to always tell God no, whenever his commands seem like a bad idea to us. That's a whole different conception of freedom. And it actually it involves like placing my own, like instead of freedom being a means to the good, freedom now suddenly becomes an end in itself and it becomes um, wow. really unhealthy. I want to ask, uh, kind of moving the conversation a little bit, transitioning to how to follow Jesus. That is the good way. That is true freedom is taking up our cross and the freedom to love him. I was, um, I want to talk to you a little bit about kind of Dallas Willard. Um, we've been thinking about uh, some of his thoughts on spiritual formation, reading this Mark Comer, or yeah, this book, John Mark Comer on the ruthless elimination of hurry. We've been talking about that over the last month. And he's basically, it's basically, um, a lot of Willard's thoughts put practically into what does an unhurried life look like. But Willard tells a story about his, you know, all these students that study ethics and philosophy. Um, you know, he mentioned nobody goes through these classes. The, the classes on studying right and wrong and studying the good. But nobody actually thinks about becoming good through the, over the course of the semester. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? It's like, we're studying about good, but we don't actually want to become good. We just right. want to know what it is. And, right. and his whole thing on the spiritual life is, you know, the great omission of the Great Commission, which is Jesus said, you know, go into all the world, make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them. And he says, and teaching them to mm -hmm. obey all I've commanded you. And that, that's the great omission is we often omit the actually teach people how to follow Jesus. And Alex, one of the things that I admire about you is I think sometimes it's hard for me to imagine like what would Jesus do? But I often think about what would Alex do? <laughs> because Alex, you, you are a lot like what I imagine Dallas Willard to be like, just in, the, in your way of life, your unhurried life, your... Um, loving and serving. And I, I really admire your faith. And I just want to ask you about how to do it, how to follow Jesus. And what, how can you help us become an apprentice of Jesus? What has helped you in that journey? Yeah. Teach yeah, us I, how to obey Jesus. <laughs> uh, you know, I read uh, Dallas Willard's book, uh, The Spirit of the Disciplines, uh, back during my last year of, of grad school. 
And it was really a transformative book for me um, because one of the things that I, that suddenly like clicked um, before was um, that growing as a disciple of Christ can't just be like uh, repent, remorse, try harder, you know, like, um, cause you can get in that cycle and the more often you go through it, the more you start doubting, like, am I even sincere in my repentance? If I keep sliding back into the same things over and over again, you know, like, and, and you know, what, what Willard understood, um, I think really well is that, um, you know, the goal isn't to try to just go out and do all the things Jesus did. The goal is over time to try to become the sort of person who more naturally does the sorts of things Jesus did, right? And that, that spiritual disciplines are, are things we engage in over time so that our character changes. And so if I can put it this way, like our natural reactions to things become different. Uh, than they would have been. And so, um, yeah, so I can remember, you know, that was the beginning of, uh, you know, a variety of different uh, spiritual disciplines that I remember engaging in, you know. So, uh, you know, I remember for the first time in my life, uh, I started fasting some. And there was actually something helpful. I mean, I, th I, think, I think the main lesson I was learning is, um, I don't have to say yes to bodily desires in order to be content, right? You know, so like when, when you know, it's been like four whole hours since I ate and I, you know, my stomach starts rumbling a little bit. Um, like God created us so that uh, the spirit would lead the body, right? We're both flesh and spirit. They're both good, but they need to, relate to each other in the right way. And if the flesh is commanding the spirit, everything is really messed up in a hurry, right? Whereas if the spirit is able to, uh, to lead the flesh, things go, go better. Um, and so I found like the lessons I was learning in that discipline helped me just in the way I related to my body in general, right? Not just with food, but with other kinds of bodily desires. Um, you know, I, I began during that time uh, by the way, I also had the advantage, I want to say this, like, I, I, I was a single guy in grad school, no girlfriend. I mean, I had a lot of time on my hands, right? So, um, the, you know, I started memorizing scripture um, in significant quantities for the first time in my life. You know, I, I had, uh, you know, I'd grown up in a you know, sufficiently Bible-centric church that I'd been taught from when I was a kid, oh, it's really important to memorize scripture. But the explanations I was normally given were things like, well, you know, you never know when you might find yourself stranded on a deserted island with a non-believer and you need to share the gospel with them. And then you won't have a Bible. But if you memorize some verses, then you'll be able to share the gospel with this person. And I just knew enough about probabilities. That seemed very unlikely. You know? <laughs> I, I, I grew up in a family where I don't think it was possible to be in a room that didn't have a Bible, you know? Um, so Bible, you know, and this is before smartphones. Like now it's even more like everybody's got a Bible on their phone all the time, right? 
they want it. Stranded on a desert or on an island doesn't work very well as a motivation for memorizing scripture. No, Um, but you know, as I was reading Willard, uh, what I I started realizing is, you know, our character is is one of the main parts of of our character is like our our patterns of thought, how we think, Um, and there's a reason why advertisers show you the same commercial over and over and over and over again, because there's actually just something about repetition that like increases the strength of a message, irrespective of how true it is, <laughs> true it is or not, right? And, and so the, I mean, that's part of what was going on back to the earlier conversation. Part of what's going on when I'm at the University of Chicago is just the sheer volume of skepticism is so great all around me, right? That it's just reinforcing the skeptical pathways in my brain all the time. Um, and so there, the, what I started realizing is, is the memorizing of scripture is as much about just sustaining your mental focus on what's true in ways that start reshaping how you think, right? You know, so in other words, um, the, the goal is not um, memorize this Bible verse so that at some point in the future, uh, when I'm finding myself tempted, I just whip out my Bible verse, and my Bible verse, like this kind of magic wand, will kind of ward off the temptation. It's more that like thinking about that verse day after day after day after day after day shapes me in a way that when I then encounter the temptation, that verse has a weight because it's it's already been kind of internalized into my into my thinking, right? And I realized I just needed to spend more time meditating on truth. And then you start working through other things like, you know, prayer and spending more time with God, right? Like those things started becoming things I wanted to do because those were opportunities to meet with God. And I was like enjoying the process of being remade, right? I mean, I could see patterns of thought and patterns of behavior changing and yeah, it was just, yeah. What you're, de- what you're describing is so John Orberg's book, The Life You've Always Wanted, where he yeah. starts off the first three chapters explaining the spirit of the disciplines, essentially. Yeah. Um, and then before he gets into his disciplines, but it's like helping people understand why and just what you explained. He's like, think about if you, his illustration is if, if you wanted to play an incredible uh, piece like Bach or Handel or whatever, you know, handles Messiah or whatever before a whole crowd of people he's like the hard way to do it is to get up on a stage in front of like 5,000 people and try really hard to play it Mm -hmm. the easy way to learn how to play it is to spend hours and hours and hours training your fingers and to where those notes become second nature and your fingers and your mind, everything. And, and then to get up in front of 5,000 people and play it. Like Mm -hmm. that's the easy way to do it. And it's, he equates that to the spiritual life where it's not just the looking at what would Jesus do in that moment of temptation. And all of a sudden I'm going to supernaturally have the power to do it. It's the years and years of kind of, what you're talking about, practicing, memorizing. Well, I'm really glad, Alex, that you found Dallas Willard when you did, because 
you know, I got to intersect your life many years later after you'd been internalizing that stuff. And I would have to say that whether in a classroom or around uh, an elder discussion or anything else, it does seem that it is the most natural thing for you to think like Jesus would think, speak like Jesus would speak, contemplate various uh, points of a decision the way that I feel like Jesus would. And so the work kind of work that you put into it, the habits that you started to cultivate, the disciplines that you began to embrace have borne a lot of fruit for those of us who are now encountering you down the road. That's one of the, one of the ways, uh, amen, Jeff. I mean, one of the ways that I need your help, Alex, is how can I live a more unhurried life? Like this morning on my way into work, man, I'm, I see the cement truck in front of me and I see the stop sign and I'm like, there's no way I want to be behind this guy when he comes to a stop, speed around him, you know, <laughs> blow through the stop sign, you know, so I can get to work 10 seconds faster. I have a, I have a hurry sickness. <laughs> How do I become less hurried? You know, one of, one of the things that Willard talks about, and I've been actually, I, I, uh, I listened to an audiobook version of a biography of Willard that just came out um, somewhat recently. I listened to it last fall, and then I've been kind of rereading some of his stuff since then. Um, is one of his things is, you know, there's certain things we really believe are true, and those do not require effort uh, for us to rely upon in daily life, right? You know, I, I have been sitting in a chair for this entire interview, and not once have I worried that the chair was going to collapse on me, right? Like, I don't have to work to muster up faith in the chair, right? I, I just have had enough experience with chairs. It seems extremely likely this chair is going to, you know, hold up just fine. Um, but often as Christians, there's these things that we know we're supposed to believe, um, but we don't really believe. And so, you know, the hard way is going through life, pretending to believe something you don't really believe, uh, and then trying to get your actions to match up with what you're pretending to believe as opposed to what you actually believe. So applying that to the, the issue of hurry, um, we're all supposed to think that God can get his work done just fine without us. Uh, but it's really hard to actually think that's true, right? Um, it's easy, you know, we all say, um, you know, uh, my identity isn't wrapped up in how much I get done and how much I accomplish. But in reality, it is, right? So, I, I mean, I think the, so one way of putting it is it's a, it's a trust issue right? In order to live an unhurried life, you have to trust that God really doesn't need your hurry in order for the world to be okay, Mm. right? So in other words, like, I I, I get suspicious of the kind of the self-help books, which are really about, here's how you can just be more efficient so that everything gets done, right? Um, it's, It's probably healthier to say, no, actually some of the things I'm doing right now, I'm just going to need to quit doing. And there are going to be consequences to me not doing those things, right? So we shouldn't pretend that there won't be impacts. Um, 
But if, if doing less allows me to trust God to get his work done without me, right, or God to raise up other people to step into the gaps that I've left, um, that can be a, a liberating sort of thing, right? That, um, you know, I, the, the more I've learned about Dallas Willard, I think he really believed it was not his job to make you agree with everything he just said. Uh, he didn't believe it was his job to make sure you do what he thinks is best for you. Um, you know, th there, there was a freedom simply just uh, to speak and then trust God, right? Trust God to be able to speak to the other person. Trust God to be able to help them in time to see whether what you said was right or not. Um, right, and, and I think he got to where he really believed God was more interested in who he was becoming than how much he got done. Um, but it's just, it's just, it's counterintuitive for us in a capitalist culture where, you know, squeezing more productivity out of every moment than every dollar is just kind of like, that's the water we swim in, right? If we go back to the fish analogy. And, and so we just, we pick that up in culture all the time. It absolutely invades church life uh, as well. So are you still driving the speed limit? Yeah. 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 That was, that was, that was one of the things that, yeah, that was one of my, the things I did after reading Dallas Willard and, and thinking about all those kind of stuff is, um, well, I will say I am still absent-minded. Uh, so I occasionally like, uh, you know, sometimes Anastasia and I will be driving around and Anastasia will say, the speed limit is now 35. It's like, oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I don't willfully speed, uh, <laughs> but uh, um, I need a little bit of that in my life. So, yeah. hey, Alex, one of the Go things ahead. you've talked about is thinking about the prize. You've used this illustration about oh, right. it's important as you pursue Jesus and pursue obeying him that you understand why and what you're looking forward to, like an athlete that never imagines what it would be like to win a championship, like, or an Olympic medal. Right. That's what drives people. Um, right. What is this thing we are looking forward to called heaven? Yeah. What do you, I, I, when you dream about heaven, what, what do you think about? I mean, to imagine a community where everyone in the entire community loves God more than they love anything else, right? And, and, and so, so suddenly we're both experiencing like the fullness of God and his glory in a way that makes, you know, our most intense moments of connection with him here look pale, right? You've got that going on. But like, we've never had a human interaction that wasn't marred by pride and ego ever right you know so like to imagine what a community of god's people getting to interact with each other is like in a world where all of the ways that sin taints things have, have been taken away um I'll, one of the other things I, I like to think about heaven actually this is one of the things that helps me a little bit i think with with hurry is uh i like thinking about the fact that time is that heaven is the place where time is no longer scarce. Hmm. You know, like, hmm. 
So I'm getting, you know, I'm getting to spend an hour with you guys. Um, and this is fun and we could do this every week, right? Um, but we can't do it every week, right? Because there's, there's too many other things, right? And there have been so many people I love and enjoy who've like come through our church and then gone out uh, that I can now go years without talking to. And I know I would love, you know, the chance to spend lots of time with them, right? And, and to realize like in the new heavens and the new earth, we will have as much time to spend <laughs> with anyone we want, right? You know, we're going we're gonna to get a chance to, um, uh, you know, yeah, just get to delight in our friendships and, and all of those things uh, without some of the constraint. That helps me not feel so much pressure, right, to try to um, bring that level of heaven to now, right, to be okay with the fact that I can't keep up with a thousand people. Um, even if Facebook says I can be friends with a thousand people. I, <laughs> um, yeah. And yeah. So, yeah. So, you know, those are some of the things I like to like to think about. Mm. Mm. Well, I, Alex, we'll have to, uh, we'll have to have a little gathering at the Dodges house. If you and Anastasia come through town and their place is beautiful and, and, uh, you know, Jeff and Teresa's hospitality is, is there. Um, and, and so maybe we can get some more time. We can hang out and just enjoy time together. And I really miss our prayer walks, you know, early on in the late nineties when we first met or early two thousands, you know, we would be going on prayer walks and just, I really miss those times with you. And, and, uh, and so Alex, thanks so much. I've learned so much from you and appreciate you. I'm going to give the last word to Jeff to close us out. Yeah. I was just thinking Alex of, um, er earlier this morning, I was talking to a new believer who, um, has had, honestly, he's, he's probably watching or listening right now, but he would say a train wreck of a life. And now, you know, Jesus has intersected his life and, and everything's brand new. He's trying to, and kind of getting overwhelmed with like the learning curve, you know, that he has at this stage of life. But so I pointed him to Hebrews eleven six, you know, that God rewards those who earnestly seek him and like, Hey, just take pleasure in the fact that God is actually pleased with you right now, not because of what you bring to the table, but at this point in time, you're seeking him. That brings a smile. And as I was thinking about that verse, Alex, that's what makes me grateful for you as well, that, you've never stopped that journey of seeking Jesus. And because of that, God has rewarded you. There's a whole lot of guys like myself and Mark who have been influenced through you because you are pursuing Jesus. And there's great reward in that. And I, I just want to, for all those that would tune in, encourage people to find that path right there. Start pursuing Jesus, start the discipline of, of following Jesus and the fruit that Psalm one beautiful tree that's still bearing fruit um, is it's a beautiful place to be. And I think you really make that come to life. So yeah, thanks for, thanks for gracing us with, with just what God has done in and through you and that example of chasing Jesus. Love it. Yeah. Love it. Alex. Yeah. Would you pray for us? Just to close our time, I'd appreciate that. 
Father, I am just thankful. Um, uh, I am thankful to get to spend uh, some time with uh, two of the people who used to be in Ames that I miss the most and um, whose conversation and friendship and wisdom and advice and zeal um, I've just learned so much from. And uh, Lord, I, I just thank you for them. I thank you for Veritas Church and uh, what you are doing uh, through through them. And I just pray, Lord, that you would help them to, to continue to be faithful and just to do more and more, um, uh, Lord, what you call them to, whatever that looks like, and help them just to be faithful in um, the place you've, you've put them and to know that even during these strange times we're in, uh, Lord, all you want is faithfulness now, just like you wanted faithfulness before. And I just pray that they would have the wisdom and courage uh, to follow in, in faithfulness. And I pray for all those who are listening, Lord, that uh, you would help us, uh, just as Jeff was saying, to be people who diligently seek you, um, who want to know uh, our God and Savior more and more, uh, to walk in his paths, believing that uh, he is good. And the more we love him and seek him, the more true freedom we have. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you so much, Alex. Uh, and thanks, everyone, for, for joining us. What a fun conversation today. And hope you guys, uh, Alex, hope you have a great, great week, great day. Thanks for joining us. And if you're listening, hope you found something encouraging to walk away with. So, all right. Love you guys. We'll see you around.